Hello and welcome to Centrist Dads and we're recording on the 90th anniversary of the establishment of the Second Republic in Spain, which I mentioned every other second I live in. Welcome to episode seven. This is our first guest episode involving a senior member of the Breakthrough Party, Joe Skeeping. Joining me all the way from Salford is Alex Najad. Hello. And joining all the way from Sandbach is Kieran Seymour. Hello. Alex, did you manage to find your chimney in the end, by the way? Because you said that you found one shattered into a thousand pieces, but is this solved? The nation is on tenterhooks. I, don't re- I mean, it's not really gone anywhere. I mean, I can't buy one. So <laughs> I think it's been parked for the foreseeable future. I don't, I don't, it's, it was yesterday's news. I mean, I've, I've right. forgotten about it until you've just said, mentioned it, actually. so um, Right to your MP, mate, because if the papers are anything to go on, there's absolutely nothing going on in the country at the moment. So you're absolutely fine. They've got time on their hands. They'll sort you out. Kieran, what have you been up to in the last fortnight, mate? Uh, not getting my hair cut. We can Not, see that. Yeah. It's tremendous. Can I Wait, just point out, that's, what, that's actually, sorry to interrupt you, that's what I actually wanted to say, that I got my hair cut today. Yeah, kick, kick a man when he's down, Alex. Thanks. No, I, I do have mine booked, though. So Monday I will be going. Yeah, it's kind of weird because obviously lockdown has gone on to the next phase of the roadmap and, and, and whatnot, but I haven't really done anything different. Like shops are open, you can go to a pub, but with a two and a half year old that's not really high on the to-do list so yeah life goes on really so what you're saying is you've got some spare time in your hands to to find a chimney for a certain individual out there Kira, yeah i'll, what, I'll see if i can help alex out good luck um, yeah i had the pleasure of being on a podcast called the right dishonorable yeah in demand you're branching you're spreading the centrist dad word i was a bit nervous at first because the word right in the in the name i was like is this a right-wing podcast it's not they were really really nice guys made me very welcome indeed and they're going to be joining us in a fortnight but we have our first guest mr joe skeeping hello have you had a chance to get your hair cut joe it's looking quite I, I long from where i'm i'm sort of worried about what you think the answer is going to be because the answer is yes but you're kind of <laughs> like it might be no. And that's sort of, I feel like that's a bad start. I'm just used to being a bit thinner at the front, don't worry. I kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people who, when I get my hair cut, my instructions are sort of extraordinarily vague. And they kind of, the way they look at you, and they, it's like you're supposed to know what it is you want. You know, I really, really don't. I, I know that I want it to just look less chaotic, and obviously particularly um, this time. But I sort of, I sort of vaguely had an idea that I wanted it to look quite stylish on the top but you know so sort of a hmm. shorter on the sides and then a bit, bit more length on the top I, I, I then when that happens I don't really know what to do with it so you know that probably causes the effect of has this person had a haircut or not but yes I have excitingly into the head it's great that I've managed to put my foot in it already and we haven't <laughs> even got started this is this is going to bode really well I hope I didn't um, misintroduce you when I said you're you're a senior person within the breakthrough party would you just be able to tell us what the party's about how it came about and how you became involved. Sure. Yeah. So I mean it's a very new formation in, you know, on the on the political scene. We're 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 very conscious of of being very new arrivals. There's a little bit of talk, isn't there, at the moment about the Northern Independence Party. We've we've still got a little further to go in terms of our kind of emergence. But our founder is a guy called Alex Mays. Uh, he lives up in Manchester and he's someone who on the you know democratic socialist left, disillusioned with kind of direction of Labour politics um, over the course of the past year, founded the party sort of late 2020. Um, and then it's just, the thing about Alex is, very, very proactive guy. And he's just been very, very good at, at reaching out to people from quite a range of different backgrounds, speaking to people who've got a degree of influence within left politics. 
And we've just gradually built it up from there. And so I've, I've come in within the past couple of months. My background is that I'm, I'm, I'm very much more fit with the kind of centrist dad mold. I am a dad and I have been in a past life, quite a sort of convinced and ardent centrist, actually, which is why I was quite attracted to your podcast, because I thought, this is, this is intriguing. I've, I was someone who was, you know, very much of the view that really anybody who had a, had a politics that was outside of what I would consider to be the mainstream essentially just needed to be scolded and reminded kind of basically what the rules are and um, told, to, told to be a bit more sensible. And I think so for me, my, my journey over the past two years or so has been to really kind of have to confront my assumptions about the way kind of what I assume are the kind of the rules and norms of politics versus actually what I've seen happening in, in, in our political system and kind of what that tells me about maybe what the real direction of travel is. And as I've become more kind of aware of that in my own mind, I've drifted further and further to the left. Um, and so I went from being someone who was probably quite critical of Corbyn to actually someone who was very devastated when, when obviously when the 2019 election result came in and then subsequently felt that I was willing to give Keir Starmer a go, but very quickly felt quite homeless, really. And so for me, it was a personal decision to join a party that I thought was committed to a politics that I kind of recognised as being valuable, rather than essentially mm -hmm. what I saw within the kind of the left wing of the Labour Party, where you're essentially just sort of, you know, and I hope this might come across as perhaps an overstatement, but there's an element of it where you're somewhat in an abusive relationship in that essentially you're you're taking a few, a few beatings on the in the hope that it will it will turn out okay that they'll you'll put the politics that you want will eventually appear mm. that just struck me as more and more unhealthy and i felt like just from a almost a point of self-care it was um preferable to join something new and to try and shape it and to see where it led it's really interesting to hear about so how different is it to starmer's labor party in terms of philosophy and, and policy but also corbyn's uh labor party that, that's why i'd be interested to know about the first thing i would say on that is that there's almost a bit of a, a when we talk about the left it, one of the things we use as a, as a descriptor of the left is kind of corbynite and it's quite an odd descriptor because intellectually corbyn doesn't contribute very much to left politics he's a, he's a really good well from a left perspective he's a very good kind of rallying force for left politics from you know 2015 onwards but he's not someone who mm. who has a kind of like distinctive set of political ideas so I, when i if i'm describing my politics i would describe it in terms of like democratic socialism it's a kind of you know it's a, a distinct tradition within within the left and so my view is that when we think about Keir Starmer I mean there's several things that I could say about about Starmer but the first is I'm not sure I know exactly what Keir Starmer's politics are and so I would find it quite difficult to draw kind of clear distinctions between our politics and his and I think that's a real problem and I don't think I think it's a problem that the Labour Party haven't fully grasped yet that it that it actually matters that people don't know what your politics are I think mm. we don't I think one of the key mistakes so far of the Labour leadership team has been the assumption that you can basically go back to a kind of 1990s style politics where essentially if you just sort of look the part and you stay vague enough on core issues you you can you can essentially win over everybody who isn't sort of wildly on the left or the right and I, I don't think that constituency exists in the same way that it did at that time we would definitely see ourselves as, as coming from a distinct tradition of left politics but we also looking at I think the I think the final point I would make just with regard to kind of where Starmer is, 
one thing that's really worth doing as a kind of historical exercise is to go back and look at the manifesto of like the SDP in like 1983. You look at that manifesto now, it's a left manifesto. If Corbyn had stood on that manifesto in, in 2017, people would have said, yeah, this is this is left wing. You know, this is something that's really kind of outside of the political norm. But of course, 24 years ago, it was basically regarded as mm. roughly the centre of British politics. In other words, the political centre has moved quite quite sharply over the course of the last 25 years, uh, 35 years. And so where, where Keir Starmer kind of is currently trying to orientate himself in, in a kind of what he regards, I think, as a centre-left position, actually, particularly on, it, on the on economic terms, you know, that, that position is really quite a long way to the, it's certainly to the right of the SDP in the 1980s. And I think when, you, when you're aware of that, then you have to ask some quite hard questions mm. about what's going on in politics. How do you reorientate it? Because if you buy that, that repositioning of the centre ground and you accept those parameters, it won't change. In fact, the ratchet effect will just keep going. So that's certainly one of the ways in which I come at this. So would you say then, seeing as it's just been Easter, uh, keeping it on an Easter theme, would you say perhaps, and I'm not saying this is exactly what you like, but that, that's kind of how you see yourself as like a, a second coming of the SDP, re-rising that and no, or, or, or well, not? the SDP, definitely not. I mean, I think I use the SDP example more in terms of just to illustrate where the centre was in the 1980s versus where it is now. I think we see ourselves as something that is genuinely new. We look at the politics of 2021 and we see, for example, that there, in a way that also wasn't the case in the 1980s, there's a distinct generational gap and therefore there's a distinct social group. There are people, you know, people who are basically 18 to 35 who are really, really left out of the current political consensus. Like essentially we have a political consensus that's basically based on the rights of like homeowners, of older socially conservative voters. Like a lot of our politics is basically geared around their interests. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and a lot is, one of the things I find quite interesting is people will say, oh, you know, who, who voted for the for Corbyn's Labour Party in 2019? Well, it was just basically those naive young student voters, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. You know, they, they basically vote, what, 50 points majority for for the Labour Party in, in 2019. I mean, it's incredible. You know, Labour loses heavily in that election, but it enjoys massive majorities amongst the younger generation. From a democratic socialist perspective, I'd look at that through an economic lens and I'd say, there are reasons why young people are overwhelmingly voting left, voting for the Labour Party, ways they didn't back in the 1980s and in earlier years. It's because their economic interests are totally neglected under the status quo. Mm. And so again, you know, and have I seen anything from Starmer as yet that offers to do anything about that? No, I haven't. Now that, that might change, mm. but my view is that unless there are forces that are kind of acting on the Labour Party at the moment to, to take those interests seriously, we'll never get there. To be honest, from your description there and how defined you were in terms of saying, no, we're not the SDP and no, we're not this. And this is the group that we want to help. It's probably arguably more uh, refined than a lot I've heard from Labour in the last year. So no, yeah, kudos to you. Well done. <laughs> I really enjoyed how you've uh, articulated your point there, Joe. I think it's it's how a lot of really a lot of people from the, on the sort of like left or center left or social social democratic school of thoughts are are thinking at the moment. I think it's it is it is a it is a strange time to be someone on on the sort of like the left. But can I just ask when when you saw that exit poll in, tw- in December of twenty nineteen and you saw that that stonking majority as Boris Johnson would call it for 
the Conservatives. What, were you already moving away from Labour under Corbyn anyway? What was that, the was it that result? Which was it the exit poll which sent you thinking, well, I need to rethink where my allegiances li- allegiances lie. For me, I I struggle with the whole Starmer drove me away argument because maybe it's because he hasn't done anything. Perhaps that's a big reason why people leave. I don't think he's done enough to antagonise people. I just think he's very. For me, he's very bland. He's very just managerialist. He's very there isn't there isn't anything that would evoke strong emotion. There is sometimes I think I wish he'd say more, but then I see on I mean it's not a very good barometer of things, but I see on social media people who have more conservative leaning or voted conservative people that I know on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. They'll say, "Then don't attack the government. How dare he attack the government? You're not playing along." Then Starmer kind of like he doesn't react to that, but then. You get the the left Twitter uh, or you know uh, the base, the Labour base, saying, "Well, he should say more." So he's he's in a bit of a rock and a hard place. I know I've I've kind of answered two questions there, but asked two questions, I should say. But what is it that what was so? If you can make sense of what I've just asked, what what do you think? Yeah, I think I've I've got it. So <laughs> I, I mean, the first question is essentially where where did my political move towards the left start? And it, to be honest, it really starts with. Well, it, it, it starts with other things, but it crystallises around Boris Johnson, because in my mind, my, my whole conception of politics prior to 2019 was basically in the end. You know, and I, and I, and I slightly am embarrassed to say this now because I, I, I've come to reject quite a lot of it. But I'll say you know, what it was. You know, basically sensible people end up running the country. It might be the odd sort of weirdo who gets through. But, but in the end, there's essentially a consensus that, you know, broadly sensible people are, go- are going to be in charge and they're going to take things in a broadly sensible direction. And it's a very complacent position. It's, a, it's partly a position born of privilege. You know, if you, if you don't actually suffer in any you know, obvious and direct way under the system, it's quite easy to think like that. But with, with Johnson as prime minister, I absolutely knew who this guy was. And it's really important, I think, to just keep saying it. You know, this is a guy with a manifestly and deeply flawed personality. You know, someone who, who let's be frank, shouldn't be anywhere near high office, right? It's not even like, oh, he's not a great prime minister. Maybe he could mm-hmm. be, you know, a, a member of the cabinet. Like, no, this is a guy who is deeply, deeply flawed. And the, th- the second thing I'd say on that is everybody knew that. Everybody in the Conservative Party knew exactly who this guy was. Everybody in the media knew exactly who this guy was. They know he's got absolutely no regard for for truth. He he is quite happy to throw minorities under a bus, to to lie, to, to do whatever is necessary to win. And that's, of course, quite a good trait if you're the Conservative Party and you desperately need to win an election. But my my kind of political worldview was just shattered by Johnson. There was sort of nothing left of it. And so to me... Then, then I would sort of encountering people saying, you know, my God, you know, Corbyn is such a sort of radical left alternative. And I'd just be thinking, hold on a second, who's who's prime minister at the moment? And, and where's he taking the country? Because I, at this point, don't see really that, it, it, that, you know, you could have a much more threatening person leading the country than the, the person currently in charge. So I think that's where, that's where it started for me. That's where sort of all of my assumptions started to get pulled apart. Now I'm trying to remember the second part of your question, Alex. I thought I had a handle on it as I was... Um, as I was going, and now I've, I've, I've... I've forgotten the second part of Alex's question. I've forgotten the second part of Alex's question, so that's even, that's even worse. I mean, it's really even good. Worse. I don't even know what I, I asked. I mean, oh, you asked about Starmer. Don't, what's he exactly done that's so, I don't know, that's turned off so many people? Yeah. I, so for me, I, I feel like I'm in the mindset of, like, May the 6th is going to be a bit of a battering in some, in some respects. 
could be a bit of a battering. So I feel like more inclined to rally behind him. Yeah. And also I can see that you obviously you referenced the SDP and you you taught history and you know you teach history at Brighton College and I just say, I just feel like surely you know what happens when the left splinter more the left splinter off into different little groups and talk to itself like the SDP like Labour did. It just opens up under our unfortunate electoral system a Tory hegemony. I mean yeah. First of all, let's remember we're in a Tory hegemony. And we've been one since 2010. And the Labour Party has had three different leaders in that period, if you include Gordon Brown. None, none of the you know, electoral strategy has failed in each case. So that's just important context to keep in mind. For me, when Starmer became leader of the Labour Party, I was certainly, you know, his 10 pledges were important to me. But there was, there was something more fundamental, which is just, in my mind, it was absolutely clear what the necessary political strategy was. So I'm not I'm not under any illusions about the fact that Starmer needed to signal a break from the Corbyn period. And I was quite comfortable with the idea that that would mean sometimes standing up and talking in front of flags and and kind of like making sure there was a clear break on issues like anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and obviously making sure it was clear that, you know, those issues were being properly addressed and, you know, making a pitch to more socially conservative voters who traditionally voted Labour. But to my, in my mind, the other half of that pitch was you absolutely have to make sure the Labour Party holds on to what has become its new base, which is younger, you know, more radical voters, ethnic minorities, LGBTQ plus community, this, this new coalition of voters. I was comfortable with the idea that Starmer would need to talk to different people. What phased me over the course of the year was he seemed really only interested in talking to that one community, this this community of, of, of voters that were perceived to have been lost. Now, you could say, well, fair enough. You know, that's the that's the group that Labour has to win back. Socially conservative, this, this, this kind of red wall label that's been applied, which I think, you know, talking to people, I think you live in the red wall. You know, I think it's a slightly lazy stereotype, but we'll park that for a moment. I, I could understand that, as I say, the need to talk to different elements within the Labour kind of core vote. But I thought his strategy was kind of almost hopelessly myopic. And if I'm honest... Alex, my judgment was within a year or so, it was doomed to fail. Concluded that for two reasons. One, I thought the strategy was bad, but also increasingly I thought the figurehead was bad. One of the things I, when I spoke about this idea of like a centrist conception of politics, Starmer is almost a classic example. If you ask a sort of typical centrist to imagine what a prime minister looks like, they basically think of somebody like Keir Starmer, right? It's like he's been created in a lab. Or <laughs> hey, people like that don't win, right, at the moment. So... You know, obviously 2019, we obviously example, but actually yeah, Ed Miliband, it, it, it's not, it's no longer the case that politicians like that are necessarily that popular. But the other thing that we have to remember about Keir Starmer, he's not a very experienced politician. I think people really forget this about him. He's only became an MP in 2015. I don't nef- necessarily know if he's that switched on, actually, to what he needs to be doing. And I think, I think we're going to see a lot of, I think you're right, the local elections are going to go badly for Labour. We're going to see a lot of post-hoc rationalisation of this. We're going to see a lot of, ah, you know, of course, you know, sadly, you know, the Corbyn project really discredited Labour. Alas, what could be done? It's worth just remembering the 2019 election result was was really bad, right? I'm not playing it down. Corbyn still got a higher percentage of the vote than Ed Miliband did. So if we're thinking about like, and I, I appreciate with the first past the post system, it translated into far less seats. But it's just worth noting that this kind of nadir of the Labour Party, as often described, was actually in terms of vote share better than 2015. In other words, the idea that this was like some kind of impossible 
recovery mission from like absolute worst case scenario. Remember, within a year of of um, Corbyn taking over the Labour leadership from Miliband, he was being told your poll ratings are terrible. Off you go. Now, I don't think. I don't know. I'm not here to sort of like argue about whether Keir Starmer should still be leading the Labour Party because I guess I've moved on by now. I just think it's interesting that because Starmer more closely reflects what we imagine a kind of politician should look like, he he's getting a pass on things I don't think he should be getting a pass on. And actually, you know what? You know, the coronavirus has been really badly handled. I think there was scope. Yes, of course, there'll always be people who say, you know, the leader of the opposition has to rein in his criticisms. But actually, I think there was scope to be a lot more robust. I don't know if Keir Starmer's instincts are sharp enough. In terms of you guys then, in, in a nutshell, what were your top three priorities, you know, in terms of what you, you want to do, what, you know, more practical policy and what, what, what do you want to do? I think number one for us is housing. There was a, a guy, I think, in the United States who said the best slogan that a new left-wing political party could have would just be the rent's too damn high. <laughs> Actually, you can you can argue about all the sort of technical issues of policy or whatever, but in the end, there's something fundamentally wrong with our economic system where you have young people essentially paying the mortgages mm. of older and richer people to the point, of course, you know, now where essentially home ownership is just out of reach for a large number mm. of younger people. So, you know, what's the solution to that? You know, it would be things like rent controls. It would be mass council house program. Um, you know, mass building of council homes. Now that stuff is, you know, that puts you sort of out, certainly very much on the left of UK politics. But again, only in the era of the Thatcherite consensus, you know, if we go back to the 1970s, the idea of like, you know, large scale council housing, rent controls, these were things that were absolutely within the kind of parameters of, of British mm, politics. Yeah. Um, so that would be that would be one key area for us. I think housing would be a kind of, you know, as I say, particularly because we are targeting those younger voters in our in our in our messaging. So then related to that, of course, is the world of work. We think that the world of work is increasingly insecure, increasingly people being forced into low skilled, high stress, you know, zero hours type employment. Um, so we think we need to therefore empower trade unions and we need to basically again reset the terms of the relationship between employers and workers to row back on much of the direction of travel over the past 30 years. And then I think the other area will be much more speaking to the kind of social activism of the younger generation. So we'd be thinking here in terms of, first of all, climate change and making sure there was a a really robust policy around ensuring that we're actually trying to reduce emissions really, really sharply over the course of the next decade, not the next three or four decades. And also in terms of racial justice, you know, again, not just sort of playing lip service to these ideas, but taking seriously the concerns of the black community around policing and around, um, you know, the kind of structural discrimination that exists in UK society. So I think broadly, those would be three major priority areas for us. But we're, it's worth stressing, you know, we're still very much a new young party. Mm-hmm. You know, these these things, yeah, they're very much subject to evolution. Yeah, and I think as well, like even like your housing one, like you know that that that's got appeal to so many people, even centrist dads, as I maybe labelled myself. Like I was looking this week, the past couple, uh, uh, potentially trying to get a bigger house. I I know I can afford it. I know I could pay the mortgage. I've got a deposit of ten percent. But I, I, I can't get a mortgage from a bank because they won't ca- count my wife's work because it's um, for an agency. So, and she's not been doing it for a year. So that's it. We, we can't afford to get a bigger house. 
uh, even though I know I can afford it. So just on that, Kieran, the interaction with the, the policies around the world of work as well. So the fact that your wife's work is is that, you know, slightly, it's, it's more, um, I'm assuming kind of, I don't, well, actually, actually, Kieran, can you say a bit more about it and then I'll say my bit again? Yeah, yeah. So, so she's, I'm not, I'm she, not sure. yeah, she works for an agency full time, um, has been since October. Yes. Um, for um, for actually for Serco, so it's really important as well. Yeah, 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 and you know, yeah. but but I I'll leave finish. But social contract between employers and employees is in absolute mess at the moment, and, and totally yeah. agree with you there. Yeah, so I think, and again, it, what you know, what has the COVID pandemic shown us in the past year? It's how are we valuing work? Mm. You know, what work work is valued? So you know. In case of your wife, she's doing work that's about as valuable as you could possibly imagine. But but actually, you know, is it valued by Barclays Bank or whatever so you can get a mortgage? <laughs> you know, no. Why, what, you know, why are there these injustices in society? Why? Obviously, you know, we, you, can't, you can't aim for a sort of utopian society. But actually, again, I just to go back to the point I made before, I think in so much of our political discussion ignores the direction of travel for the last 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. And actually the idea that often what's now are kind of regarded as a radical left position is, is sometimes just trying to move back to something that was a, a much more sort of reasonable relationship between worker and boss. I guess one of the things that we didn't see all those years ago was was the prevalence of zero hours contracts that, that we have. And I think I saw today that the UK is one of only seven countries in the world which allows zero hours contracts. I don't want to like press you because I know obviously it's a young party and I don't know your process for suggesting and approving of policies. But is there a stance on sort of on the, the gig economy, on zero hours contracts and the like? Well, I've got good news for your listeners first, Adam, because we are relaunching our website our, uh, this week. So by the time this episode goes out, you'll be able to go and see our current set of policies in glorious Technicolor at oh i need to oh i should have should have prepped this bit breakthroughparty.org.uk everyone can find it there thank you very much don't that's worry. really bad isn't it no, don't bad. worry i was asked my twitter handle on on the right dishonorable and i couldn't remember it to save my life <laughs> don't worry yeah don't worry I'll, I'll just style it out yeah. so but on the on the specific question no zero hours contracts is something that i think there's pretty much a consensus within the party that we would want to ban and so you know and it raises that question of how do you make policy in a in a party that's really just finding its feet mm. there's a lot you know it's actually i think the other thing that i found i've enjoyed over the past couple of months actually is just being involved with something that's totally organic and new and actually you're having to just figure all this stuff out stuff from the ground up everything to do with organization a constitution structure the idea of a, a conference and kind of also trying to rethink what those things might look like in the 21st century so there's there's a side to it which is just quite liberating to be involved with something that is genuinely mm. you and, and you know you've got the freedom to, to really think from the ground up about what kind of society you want to live in it sounds like a really exciting project to be part of the setting up of a new party and you're you're not weighed down by the legacies of, of previous leaders. Where are you seeing new members of Breakthrough coming from? Because I hear the term politically homeless quite a lot online. Is, is that sort of the pool that you guys seem to be inadvertently fishing into or are people seeking you out from unexpected places as well? well I think the first thing to say about that is, you know, in a, in a democratic society it is important that they, these these range of opinions are represented within the within the system and i think where you have a situation where you know, a significant number of people feel politically homeless it is important that there is there are movements that provide them with a voice mm. yeah we we absolutely see ourselves as a party that is speaking for those who currently feel like they don't have a voice within the political system but i think particularly as i've said in the 
the show already yet. That's particularly about younger voters, people who really just aren't being focused on in terms of policy direction and so on in the country. Now, of course, we also think there are lots of older voters who think that it's really important to empower young people and make sure they've got affordable homes and good careers and also a sustainable planet. So we don't, we're not, we're not ageist in any sense. We welcome, we welcome all comers. But I think we do have a, a specific idea of, for me, I also look at politics and I ask myself, where's the energy in politics at the moment? There's quite a lot of energy on the radical right, let's be honest. The radical right is is empowered mm. over the past couple of years. It's, it's really quite resurgent. Arguably, it's in government. And I, but I also see that energy on the on the left. And, I, and I, I've joined, for example, some of the demonstrations against the policing bill in Brighton over the past few weeks. And there's a real energy there that really isn't being tapped into. Mm. You know, we see that as, as, as you know, that's, that's currently where we're looking. We're looking at how other small emerging parties on the left are faring. We don't see ourselves as, as in competition with those parties. That would obviously be ridiculous. We're all very small. We're, we're interested to see how a party like Northern Independence Party get on. And we, but we'd like to be in a position where we're fielding candidates in, in local elections, in by-elections, and obviously building up to you know, an election that, that may take place in 2023 or 2024. So were you guys registered in time to, to field candidates for the upcoming local elections? Yeah, ironically, um, we were actually, um, although we took the decision that we weren't quite ready for that for that move just yet. Um, okay. So we, we're taking a little bit longer. Fair enough. We don't see it you know, necessary to kind of commit just now. And um, we've still got quite a bit of work to do, I think. Yeah. But, um, but we are registered. And we're, we're growing. We're growing in terms of the, the people that we're getting through uh, the website and also on Twitter. You know, we're, we're sort of definitely making our presence felt. This, this is a moment, I think, I'd say, you know, you mentioned earlier, I'm a history teacher. You know, p- people are very good in, in politics at saying X or Y is impossible. You know, you, you just can't do it. I, I feel like if you've lived through the last five or six years, you should be cautious of anybody telling you that, right? You know, anybody who tells you in politics, you can't, this can't be done. This will, this will just not happen. I think I think we're living in a time where unexpected things do happen in politics. We we know that what we're trying to do is immensely difficult. We know what the odds are. We know how strongly the the, the scales are tipped in favour of parties that are established. But we we also mm. we we see a value in trying to project a kind of a stronger voice on the left that will we hope at the very least have an impact on on the direction of travel within the Labour Party. We obviously have aspirations beyond that as well. But you know it's a long. It's a long game. Sounds great. I've got one final question for you. Maybe it's a feature for guests. I don't know. I've just thought of it. I'm already nervous. (laughs) I'm nervous. It's good natured, I think. So you've won a golden ticket and um, from, from Boris Johnson and you're allowed in parliament for one day to uh, pitch a a policy or put forward a, a motion to the house of commons uh, for for one day, what policy? What motion are you going to bring forward? Give me a moment. That wasn't as horrendous as I was expecting, Kieran. Oh yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, I felt I felt relieved actually. Um, I think I would put my education hat on. I mean, there's lot. Obviously, there's lots of stuff around climate change, or uh, I've talked about housing already that I feel really strongly about. But actually, from from my own professional background, and this might sound a bit niche in a way. But I, from a hist- from the perspective of a teacher, I would I would have I would argue for the abolition of GCSE exams and a, and a significant reduction in the whole examination system within the education sector and a, and a kind of rebalancing of the kind of pressures that are on young people because I've seen particularly over the past couple of years how much stress they're under. So I, w- I would put my own I, I'll I'll go in a slightly different direction because this is a special feature I think. 
yeah. you want. You know, I think you want personal answers. So that's absolutely fine. I would like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see a, a really reimagination of what we think education is for, and that's something I also hope to see breakthrough mm-hmm. advocating as we as we grow into that. Brilliant. And uh, Joe, you, you've got your own podcast as well with another member of the Breakthrough Party. Should you want to just tell us a, a little bit about what that podcast is about and where people can find it? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. It's um, under another name. That's that's the name of the podcast. So you can find us on YouTube. We do broadcast live. And we are very much an experimental kind of history, politics, ideas type type podcast. So um, that's um, come and join us and uh, yeah, come and find us on YouTube. And then Breakthrough, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. And thanks to you, Adam, we now know that you can find us on the World Wide Web. So uh, do come and check us out and, and get in touch. Brilliant. <laughs> really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you for thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for telling us about Breakthrough Party and and what you guys are standing for. And um, yeah, we look forward to seeing where this where this goes. Awesome. No worries. Cheers, guys. Moving on, we're going to talk about dodgy dave potentially dodgy dave kieran what have you got in store for us this fortnight i I like your little uh little legal disclaimer that you put in there as well (laughs) dennis gonna send it i'm not calling him dodgy dave dennis gonna send it don't come for me david cameron's he's gonna at you oh god can you imagine he he doesn't sue me he just sends loads of posters after me (laughs) what's what's my former mp been up to Kieran. oh god um right so basically it's dodgy as f what's going on um so question time today starmer uh, pmq's question time sorry. pmq's today starmer comes on goes oi boris what's going on with lobbying boris goes nah mate it's it's it yeah look there's some stuff going on I'm not going to say what it is, but you know what it is. I know what it is. And, you know, we'll have a look at it. Um, Starmer comes back and basically says, if you're not going to tell him, ex-Prime Minister Dodgy Dave employed, when he was in office, employed um, someone from this company called Greensill. Green Greensill, yeah. Employ someone from this company uh, to work for them. And there's proof of that because we've seen this business card going around. He left, obviously, after his disastrous uh, referendum vote. Cheers for that, Dave. And all the uh, subsequent chaos that caused. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Then it turns out he's gone to work for this Greensill company. You don't say. Shocking, isn't it? And, And then basically been lobbying for them by texting Dishy Rishi late at night. Dave, this is Dave. Dave's been texting Dishy Rishi saying, can you have a look at these guys and sling us a few billy uh, or two or five or 50 million or whatever it was that they, they were after. And then Rishi kind of, you know what he's like, he didn't really do much. It seems, but we don't really know. So, but he so, did. What saying, so what you're saying is Rishi might have ghosted Dave. <laughs> Yes, Rishi's ghosted Dave, but not ghosted him totally. Actually gone, take a look at these guys, swipe right on these guys, Dave. They'll meet with you. Giving him some people to meet with. Also, obviously, the man who loves a deal with a mate, as we've learned over the past year, Hancock, has also met with 
these green soil people. Um, so you've got two really prominent cabinet ministers all having these meetings with these green soil people, all being orchestrated behind the scenes by the ex-prime minister um, to basically take taxpayers' money and take advantage of the government business loan scheme or whatever it is. That might not be the right term. But yeah, highly dodgy. Obviously, end of PMQs, uh, Boris Johnson was like, nah, this is fine. Our inquiry is sorted. We don't need a public one because we need to be focusing on the vaccine. We need to be focusing on COVID, which is the excuse for absolutely everything at the moment. Because we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Exactly, like, yeah. Is this? Like, we, can't, oh, we can't do it because of the vaccine rollout. I thought Matt Hancock's got that covered. I don't know, Adam. Obviously, the cabinet are, and, uh, are the ones giving all the doses, which is why they can't do anything. You know, personally, they must be. I, there's only one one scenario in which I would refuse the vaccine, and that is if Pretty Patel was administering it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah, definitely. Or Hancock, actually. Actually, or Hancock, to, to be fair. Or Boris Johnson. <laughs> or Chris Grayling. I don't know where Boris Johnson's been. Yeah, I, I, don't, no, I, no. I don't need that thing near me. No. There was also a, a, a little a, a cheeky morsel hidden amongst that that David Cameron had stock options with green sill and they were worth about 60 million when it was going under when he sent these texts to the chancellor to try and save the company the, the value of his stocks had gone from 60 million to to worthless mm. so as the proverbial was hitting the fan then he was like Shit, i need to sort this out call me old-fashioned but it just looks a little bit like corruption well doesn't it? um it just looks like it i'm not saying it is yeah. lawyers i'm not saying it is I'm saying it, it, some would say it looks like corruption Keir Starmer said in PMQs, like, this is the return of Tory sleaze. You know, given what else we've seen over the last year, he's, he's not wrong, is he? This, the, and this absolutely stinks of it. And and the continuous line I keep seeing from the, the Johnson and the government and how they're dealing with it, because um, Starmer was saying, look, we need to re review the lobby laws and change them. And then he's kind of saying, oh, no, no, what are you on about, like, you voted against those laws, so you don't want them. So basically, anything that Starmer attacks him for, he just goes back to, oh, you didn't vote for this, you didn't want this, which obviously isn't the case. It's like they're the opposition party, and actually the reason they didn't vote for it because they didn't think that the, the lobbying laws went far enough. Mm. It's an interesting line of attack that they keep using, um, so watch, watch out for that one. For me, what I find frustrating is that it's quite complicated because, you know, I struggle to get my head around it and don't totally understand it because it's highly complicated finance and money and all sorts of that. So is it going to hit hard? Can you put it on a headline? Exactly. The only way that's going to happen is a, a full public inquiry um, or a or select committee of MPs looking at it, which is what Labour wanted to happen and brought to the house for a vote but obviously it was rejected by so first the of all it's like the, the, how does an 11 year old government keep shrugging off all these things and i think that's to boris johnson's credit isn't it it's one of his greatest political successes that he's been able to just shrug everything off and say we're a new government we're so fresh and all this it's it's just interesting how they've been able to how johnson's been able to do that he's given the illusion of the fact that this is actually a, a, a new government not an 11 year old government that's been in previous incarnations but it's interesting because mm. also it's like well 
will this cut through to the will this cut through to the average with, with the voters and the public? Well, if it go if it's sleaze that goes to the very heart of of the government through many throughout many years through many ministers that are in Parliament that are that are on the backbenches or in, or in the cabinet now like Matt Hancock, then I think it will be a it will be a, a, an area of interest and it should strike through. But I mean, if it depends, I think on how much the, the media lambast decide to lambast the government on this and lambast Cameron. You could also argue, well, Cameron's yesterday's man. He was the he's the ex prime minister. He's out of the game now. What what interest does he have? I mean, he's a former prime minister though, and he claimed over a hundred thousand mm. pounds on his on his private office, his former prime ministerial office, from the taxpayer mm. last just last year. And this is August twenty twenty when this is announced. And so that's funding his secretary that's funding his his equipment and just the operations of, a, of, of any office therefore it is public interest he it is an it is an interest because people will also lose jobs he also gets a stipend of over 100 grand as an ex-pm which i didn't know until today yeah yeah i didn't know that well, exactly. this is a guy that's pursued a destructive austerity program and implemented this to great acclaim of his own personal acclaim with George Osborne. He had that renegotiation of the NHS and brought in the uh, 2012 Care Act. This dysfunctional welfare system, that unworkable net migration target that he he kept going on about, and this delusionary, frankly, golden era with China and the referendums of Scotland and and Brexit. Can Can we just put to bed the fact that this guy is really just some corrupt... (laughs) <laughs> who was just so arrogant just so arrogant arrogant enough to gamble the country's future with the referendum epitomizes the the etonian the old etonian arrogance of how to run this country and can we just put to the bed the fact that he's just some he was some sort of modernizing principled prime minister who just kept doing what he thought was right ultimately i mean he was he's just one of the most shallow political figures we've ever had in our, in our modern history i think because what did he ultimately stand for really i mean it was just backward stuff turbocharged thatcherism with throwing some referendums and i think he's going to go down in history as, as one of the most reckless prime ministers that we've had especially in modern mm. times because well there was obviously brexit he he gambled with the union as well and nearly uh, saw the end of of the union yeah and he came out pretty unscathed from from the scottish referendum really mm. you know rather than it being rather than us thinking god that was a close one it was just yeah. sold as this triumphant then brexit didn't go the, the brexit referendum didn't go the way that he he wanted it to not that you know it with this sort of half ass campaigning and then he and then he backed off and he hasn't got to he hasn't got to do anything about mm. it it's like well it's not me Oh, brilliant! Great, thanks, thanks for that. It's all, it's all very good and easy to to fly into the Arctic and be with huskies and I don't know, try and rebrand yourself, like Alex is saying. When the proverbial hits the fan, you just, you just a bit crap. You just weak. What you have to do to get sacked in this government? I honestly, murder, cold blooded murder. That seems the only way that ministers are going to be have to resign. They can just get away with everything and. I just think eventually something's really going to hit home with normal average people like us. At the moment, there's a time limit, Alex, isn't there, from when politicians leave office to when they take up cushy private sector jobs, and it's two years? A heck of a way to question here. Do you think that's fit for purpose? Or do you think if that was changed, it would sort of be plastering over the cracks and that it wouldn't really get to the heart of the issue if they just change it from, say, two years to, I don't know, five years? Yeah, so Gordon Brown's been saying that 
uh, former prime minister should be banned from lobbying for five years. Mm. It's it's ironic, really, that Gordon Brown is calling on lobbying uh, to be uh, banned for over five years because it was at the back end of Gordon Brown's premiership when Cameron came out and said that this was lobbying was the next big scandal waiting to hit British politics after the expensive scandal, expensive scandal in 2010. I think it's it's just full of irony there that it's his predecessor, it's his his predecessor who's calling on the the tougher the tougher rules, and I think. What he's saying there, that if no former minister can lobby for five years and for any commercial purpose or within government or any civil servants, I think that's the right way to go. But does it does it cut through? And I think there needs to be some sort of an independent regulator that manages and tracks all of the former ministerial uh, attempts at lobbying or dealings with commercial enterprises it needs to be put in place. Uh, to make a really toughened stance and to show an example that this is this is really um, an, an issue because we go we go every few years without one of these scandals happening. I think it was 2015, the last time that this happened. I think it was Jack Straw got stung and Sir Malcolm Rifkind, mm. uh, former big hitters in their respective parties. And this is just before the 2015 election, so it gets brushed under the carpet. Everyone forgets about it. Then they don't stand for Parliament again in the subsequent election. We move on. But I think I think this scandal will rumble on for a period of time, considering who it is and the sums of money and the, the, the jobs that will be lost. So I think that's what will that will inevitably what will have to happen. And I think that Boris Johnson has said that he's gonna uh, go all like carte blanche at this, but I I don't think he'll go far enough. Well, what gives you that impression, Alex? Well, well exactly. I mean it's it's jobs for the boys ultimately. So yeah. uh, I'm not I, naive, but I, I, it is just it's a mess and I think as soon as this becomes a political crisis or crises for the Johnson government that's only when they'll act and at the moment they're not feeling the pressure I don't think and they're going to shrug this one off I agree I don't think I and I don't think they're going to feel the pressure I think keep the heads down for a couple of days it'll blow over the press will get something else everyone will forget and this will just carry on because if he wanted to sort it out, he could have agreed to that inquiry that Keir Starmer and Labour were, were putting mm. forward um, if he was genuine in, in wanting to sort it out. But he's probably wanting to get a cushy job at the end of it. And so are all the sorry MPs who voted against it. So are a lot of the MPs who probably voted for the motion. They're thinking, God, I kind of hope this doesn't pass. You know, it's it's just gross because the majority of people up and down the country who are slogging their guts out to to make ends meet and they're seeing wages being frozen and stagnated and you know especially we like this this huge impact on unemployment in the in the private sector because of covid and then these measly pay freezes and a one percent increase which which is technically an increase because inflation's at 0.9 percent we were told oh great you know it's just it just it's a spit in the face of everybody who's working hard for the people who are making the rules to do their own homework, as Keir Starmer said it, in terms of checking that they're not being dodgy. And then just going on to, to help give favours to people who they let into the corridors of power when they were MPs on the promise that they would get cushy jobs afterwards. It's just, it's, it's, it's fundamentally broken. It just it gets worse. It's, it's, it comes spilling into the civil service now. That uh, the cabinet secretary basically asked colleagues to de- 
uh, oh, sorry, the current cabinet secretaries asked colleagues to declare whether, whether they have paid roles or outs, outside interests that might conflict civil service duties because a top official of the civil service joined um, a financial firm um, and that financial firm, guess who it was? Greensill Capital, was oh. still working for the government. This seems to be snowballing in, 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 in the sense of content and it's getting bigger and bigger every day, but it's whether that is picked up by the right-wing press and the media and they decide to run with it or not, basically. That's what it's probably going to come down to otherwise, or something criminal comes out. Um, otherwise, they'll just be able to sweep it under the carpet like they seem to be able to do with, with everything else at the moment which is very depressing. Um, yeah, and I don't know, my final point on this is Lex Greensill as well, the guy running the place. Have you seen a picture of him? He sounds like a villain, doesn't he? sounds like, you know, Lex, Lex Greensill, Lex Luthor. I mean, is there any difference? Honestly, and then you see a picture of him, not kidding, wouldn't look out of place in a James Bond film as, as, as the villain, honestly. <laughs> There's some people who are making an awful lot of money and they were threatened with the prospect of making not quite as much money as they thought they did. I say that with, you know, £60 million of stock options for Dodgy Dave, even though he's fairly well off, I think it would be fair to say. Mm. He's, he's not doing too badly. Then he took an action which was step, which stepped across the line, we all think. But of course, it didn't step across the line legally. That's for me is the most galling thing is that it's a bit like the expenses scandal. It's like, well, what what we technically did was legal. What we technically did was buy the book, but everybody, everybody who's not an MP is thinking, yeah, but you took the, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do just because it didn't meet the specific criteria. Doesn't mean that you weren't taking the doesn't mean that you weren't trying to get taxpayers exposed to to debt because they would have been. There would have been about a, a, a billion pounds exposed, mm. which would have had to be forked out. But what's another billion when you've, as Boris Johnson would say, thirty-seven billion on track and trace? That could have slid in under, you know, under the carpet. Nobody would have noticed because it wasn't one of the big figures. There's been lots of this dodgy dealing going on with this government. It, I just feel like we're seeing possibly one of the most corrupt government. I think the most corrupt government since we've been around. Yeah. In terms of who's been getting contracts and that the contracts haven't been fulfilled and they still get paid and people get bailouts when they're you know they're mates and they could give them contracts to do work that they've never done before. The press should be outraged, mm. but it's not. We know why it's not. Alex, you you look like I've touched a nerve there. That's isn't that in part due to the to the death of the Duke of Edinburgh? Isn't that the reason why this has been brushed under the carpet somewhat by the um, the conservative supporters? I mean and and um, the, the more left-leaning, uh, more left-leaning press, and certainly the BBC was able to give this a, a free pass over the weekend, so it didn't really strike a chord over the weekend because of the mm -hmm. Prince Philip's death. I suppose the Conservatives are hoping that they've got gotten away with it under the the, the, the sort of hysteria of uh, Prince Philip's death in the media. Mm. Good day to bury bad news, wasn't it? Yeah. So what do you what do you think is going to be the outcome then, Alex? Like Kieran reckons it would just be. Well, Kieran, you're saying it's it's snowballing, but you don't reckon it'll go anywhere. I think, I think it, the content is snowballing. I think there's more to come out, but it's not going to be dealt with probably how it should be. 
unless something criminal comes out, I can't see it um, having that much impact. I suppose it will have to wait and see whether how much this strikes accord with people, the media. If this goes to the heart of the government, the Conservative government, and has been at the heart of it for many years, then it could be a, a significant issue which they'll which they'll be dogged by for a period of time. But whether this will have any short-term impact, I'm not too sure. Whether the opposition can make any capital out of it, I, I'm not too sure. Not to be cynical and not to be vague and not really to answer the question, but that's just how I'm feeling mm. at the moment. I expect we will hear this as one of the main attack lines at the next general election. Not just this issue, but mm-hmm. the wider things with like Hancock's dodgy stuff and the PPE and Dominic Cummings and everything else that's that's kind of come out. I think that is going to be one of Labour's like top attack lines. So I do think it will stick around, but like Alex said, I'm not sure how much that's going to hit home, basically. I think absolutely nothing is going to happen. <laughs> and that's the opposite to what should be happening serious questions should be asked procedures should be changed because we kept we came within a hair's breadth of taxpayer being exposed to a billion pounds of debt so that david cameron would have made 60 million pounds on his shares some cynical people might say maybe david cameron arranged this meeting so that he could get 60 million even if taxpayers ended up forking out a billion but i'm not possibly gonna i'm not obviously gonna say that am i of course i'm not no, I feel like Chelsea, we should probably wrap it up there. But before we go, I feel like we should say that we've reached two new countries in the last 30 days. Ooh. So we have reached India and New Zealand. That's exciting. Really exciting. We've had a few more listens in the States as well, in Washington and Boyd, Boydton. Boydton? Boydton. I don't know how you pronounce it. Bradenton, Tampa. And really appreciate it, everybody who's listening to this and who's been sharing it. And our DMs on Twitter are always open. Kerry, do you want to give a shout out to our social media? Yeah. Give us a follow on social media at Centrist Dads on Facebook and Twitter. Follow or like. Give us a comment. I said, by the way, you'll like this. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but there's a new Apple podcast review. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I always check it with a bit of trepidation because political podcasts, a lot like religious podcasts, tends to get like one star reviews from people with a different opinion. And <laughs> yeah. it's purely based on opinion. This is a five star review. So thank you, whoever wrote this. And the title of this short review is I may not yet have all the facts, <laughs> dot, 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 from Fullerton42. He says, but a minute into my first episode and they are straight into talking about chimneys. I have come home. <laughs> <laughs> so Fullerton42, thank you very much. Um, we hope, therefore, that our, our little chimney recap from uh, Alex Najad's ongoing odyssey to get hold of a chimney for him and his partner has brought you some joy. But thank you very much for your five-star review. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So it's goodbye from Kieran in Sambach. Ala vida to our listener in India. And it's goodbye from Alex Najad all the way in Salford. The Chimenea story is a tale as old as time and it will it will live on and the journey will continue. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me in Spain. Goodbye. Sorry, guys, we're we're all pre-average, aren't we, I'd say.
I am average high, average. I wouldn't say you average high, Adam. Come on, I'm as generous. <laughs> I'm bang average. If, if five foot three is average. I mean, five foot ten. Are you? Yes. You do look smaller in the Zoom box. That might be why. Because I'm far away from the camera. This is how perspective works.